you can open to Psalm 139 this morning. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to be in this psalm. Decided to take a short break from the Gospel of John, a study that we've been enjoying for several months now, and spend a little time this morning in this, in this psalm. And I found myself studying the psalm earlier this week, thinking through it and really encouraged by it. And then, and then I found myself intrigued by and captivated by the same story that probably caught a lot of your attention. Uh, many of you, probably maybe all of you, uh, the story about the uh, submersible. It's not a submarine. It's technically called a submersible that was lost at sea there, having gone down to, to uh, tour the Titanic wreckage. And that story, again, I'm, I'm guessing for most of you, you, you at least read about it or watched the news and heard about it there or watched videos about it kind of captivated the nation, captivated the world in a very real sense. Many, many people all over the world interested in this story and lots of reasons for that. Of course, we know about the, the tragic ending, which is very sad to, to learn on, I think it was Thursday, that we learned that there was uh, evidence that the, that the submersible had imploded. And so, such a tragic situation. And I, I found myself thinking about why, why we're so captivated by stories like that. In the beginning, when there was mystery to it, we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know if those people would be found or not. We, we knew that uh, they were very, very deep under the water. You may have heard, but they were really close to two miles deep, maybe over two miles deep in the water. The conditions down there, even just to think about the conditions, which we often don't spend time thinking about, but to think about the conditions down there, pitch black, over 12,000 feet down, they say that the pressure down there is up to upwards of 6,000 psi, pounds per square inch. So for those of you scientifically minded people, you know what that means, but a lot of pressure, let's put it that way. Very dangerous place, and, and part of the reason the story was so interesting in the beginning is we were, were holding out hope that perhaps they would be rescued, and we, we just didn't know. They didn't know exactly where they were. No one knew, didn't know if they could be retrieved, if someone could get to them, if it was even possible to get to them. So there's all these questions, all these questions, this mystery, and this sense of, man, what would it be like to be there, to be, to be stuck there, to be, to be down there, to be so far from home, to be so far from help, right? I mean, that's what we were thinking about and what it must have felt like, and, and now we're learning that it probably ended pretty quickly, which is a mercy for sure. But something about it just acquaints us with our mortality, our, our fragility. Just one more story, one more example of how limited we all are. Limitations in terms of the people who went down on that little submersible. Limitations in terms of the people who were looking. Limitations in terms of even those of us who were curious or interested. All these things we just didn't know. All these limitations, right? And this profound sense of lostness being lost in this dark abyss. As we think about that, it really presents an analogy for us of what existence is like, what life is like without our Creator. If, if there were no God, if there were no loving Father, and yet in the psalm that we're going to look at this morning, Psalm 139, we are acquainted with a God who is everywhere present, who is, who is with us, and even if and even when the worst happens to us, is still with us. And we're going to be encouraged by that truth this morning here in Psalm 139. This is written by King David. Familiar 
biblical character. Most of us know some things about King David. I think we would say that in, in some senses we can't relate to a guy like Kim, King David. For one thing, he lived like 3,000 years ago. That was a long time ago in ancient Israel. Things were very, very different back then. And his position of royalty, you can't relate to that. And all the ups and downs of his life were quite different than the ups and downs of our lives. Life littered with amazing successes, killing Goliath, right? Well-known. Also, tragic failures and sinful failures and many, many relationships and family relationships and relationships with his military, relationships with people who served him and, and all these things that were part of his life that that are so distant from us, both in terms of time so long ago and also in terms of culture and all of that, just so different, and yet he was a human being. And so when we read Psalms like this one where he wrote, we we read his heart and we read his thoughts and we see someone who is just like us, really. He's not that much different from us, really. And we see in this Psalm that there's this intimacy between David and God. Uh, grammatically speaking, we see a lot of first-person and second-person pronouns here. A lot of I and you. David talking about himself and then talking about God and this interaction between them. And we're going to see this intimacy. So let's, let's begin. We're going to make some observations, and I'll just tell you, we could spend weeks in this psalm. We're only going to spend one Sunday here. So we're going to hit the high points, okay? We're going to hit the high points. And first of all, I want you to observe with me in verses 1 through 6 that we have a God who searches and knows us. We have a God who searches and knows us. Read this section with me. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. I want to point out to you, first of all, in this section, just notice all the verbs here related to God's knowledge of David. All the verbs for which God is the subject. See, in verse 1, you have searched me, you have known me. Well, who? Who searched and who has known? God. Verse 2, you know, there's no again. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. The end of verse 2, you understand. There's another word that's similar. You understand my thought from afar. It may be in your ESV. You discern my thought from afar. Verse 3, you scrutinize. That word scrutinize, again, has to do with this intimate knowledge. I think in the ESV, that one is is, uh, search out. You search out who I am. He says my, my path and my lying down. The end of verse 3, you're intimately, intimately acquainted with all my ways. Verse 4, you know every word. And he really says, you know, before it even becomes a word on my tongue, you know it. Verse 5, you've enclosed me, or in the ESV, you've hemmed me in. Verse 6, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. See see all those terms mean over and over and over with these various words. David is communicating what he understood about God, which is that God understood him. What he knew about God, which was that God 
knew him. In his well-known book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer said this, What matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. He knows you. He knew David thousands of years ago. He knows you. He searched David to the depths of David's heart, and he searches you. Just a few other observations in this section. He says, when I sit down, when I rise up, kind of the idea of when I'm, when I'm resting, when I'm working, when I'm sleeping. What do you know when you're sleeping? Nothing, kind of. So maybe dreams going on or whatever, but nothing, which is part of what we like about sleep, right? It's kind of nice to, for a little while to not be thinking about anything. Am I right? Even while we're sleeping, God is not sleeping. It says elsewhere in the Psalms that God keeps His people Israel. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. God doesn't need any rest. He doesn't need His, his mind, so to speak, to turn off like we do. He's not limited like we are. And He's intimately acquainted with all our ways, including when we're sleeping, including when we're unconscious, including when we're being wheeled into surgery. And under anesthesia, even in those types of moments. Isn't that good to know? God knows you in those moments, in every moment. He says, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before there's a word on my tongue, you know it. Every thought in our minds, he knows. Every thought. And everyone's different in how many thoughts we process day by day. But estimates are somewhere in the ballpark of thousands to tens of thousands of thoughts, even more than we speak. Our mind is just going, 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 constant thinking. And and God is aware of all the details of all those little thoughts and all the emotions and feelings that go with those thoughts. All of it. Omniscient, all-knowing, big theological term. Grand scheme, small details. Every little detail knows it all, including your thoughts. And David is encouraged by this reality. He's celebrating this amazing, exhaustive knowledge of God and how God knows him. Secondly, observe here with me in the next section, beginning in verse 7, that we have a God who is with us. God who is with us, verses 7 through 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're here, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. I mean, as I read that, I can't help but think about, again, that that submersible, two miles down, pitch black. The darkness, the lostness of that. And here, David is saying that there's nowhere I can go, no matter how far, how deep I go in the ocean, how far they can explore with space shuttles and Elon Musk's little spacecraft that he's trying to fly all over the place. I mean, however far they can go, can't get beyond a place where God is. He is everywhere. He is everywhere. 
used to be they would estimate the size of the universe. I think they've stopped trying. It's like they see it's expanding, and so you, there are certain figures given way back, and it's, now it's kind of stopped trying. It's just the observable universe is so-and-so, it's this big, and it's trillions and trillions of light years across, and that is like multiplied by, I think, billions of miles. It's just math that makes your brain hurt. It's just really, really, really big is the point. And there's nowhere you could go. Even if you could travel to the outer reaches of the universe, you could never escape God's presence, never. He's everywhere. He's outside of what he has made. He's over all that he has made. He's within all that he has made. He is everywhere present. Um, Omnipresence, you've heard that big term. He is everywhere. No place is too far for him. No place is too dark for him including the depths of the ocean and the blackness there or the thickest forest in the middle of the night, wherever. And including the the darkest recesses of your heart and mind, there too is not darkness to God. It's all light to Him. He sees it all. Next, notice with me, we have this God who made us. God who made us. This is a familiar part of the psalm. So good. Verse 13, You formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My time frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret. And skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth, your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Question. Is it okay to feel good about yourself? Is it okay to feel good about yourself? Now, don't don't answer that question out loud. Just think about it. As church folks, there's perhaps a hesitation to answer that in the affirmative. Like, it's hard to say yes. I mean, for one thing, we're kind of familiar with, like, the psychotherapy community. We know where where they go with these types of topics of self-image and self-esteem and things like that. We might have an allergy to that, and that's appropriate in one sense. In another sense, I mean, look look what David says. I mean, did you hear what he said? He, He literally said, God, I thank you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. God, when you created me, that was a wonderful work. It's David's way of saying what it says in Genesis 1, that God created all things good, and that God created men and women in his image to include the very details of who you are, your very personality, your looks, the family you were born into, the environment you were born into, your strengths, your weaknesses, whether you're good at math or terrible at math, whether you're artistic or not artistic at all, all those details David here says, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, and I give you thanks. And I think it may be in the ESV that it says, I praise you. I praise you, God, for who you made me to be. So often we humanly, we get imbalanced. We overreact to things, and we, we lose sight of what the balance of all of Scripture's revelation. And here it's pointing out this idea that, look, it's, it's not only okay, but it's appropriate to feel good about who you are because who you are is a gift God created you in his image. He made you special, unique. You know, you hear the, the snowflake analogy. Like, we're all like the snowflakes, not in the political sort of left. We're not going to go there. Snowflakes in terms of uniqueness. 
You might be that kind too, but we won't talk about that. In terms of uniqueness, no two alike, right? Everybody is unique. And that is by God's design, and that is a gift, and that is something to be thankful for. And David is marveling over who God made him to be, and that doesn't mean, and we'll go into this a little bit later, but just as a footnote here, that doesn't mean that we delight in or revel in all of our fallenness and sin and rebellion, not at all. We're not proud of those ugly parts of ourselves. It's not prescribing narcissism. It's just understanding in a balanced sense that God made us. And he put us where he put us. And he gave us what he gave us. And, and I know when I, when I counsel with people and I talk with people, and, and even when I think about my own evaluation of myself, so frequently there are negative thoughts about myself. And so frequently when I talk with people in the counseling office, there's an overall negative view of oneself. And again, I'm not going to ask you this, not going to just raise your hand or say anything, but I mean, if you and I were talking privately and you let me in on your private thought life, I mean, would you say that overall you have a positive or a negative view of yourself? Again, I'm not talking about sin. I'm not talking about the destructive parts of who you are. We're going to get to that in a moment. But just in terms of who God made you to be, the gifts and abilities he's given you, the family you were born into, all those things that he ordained for you, Probably a lot of you have a pretty negative outlook when it comes to that, or at least a mix of the two, somewhat negative, somewhat self-condemning, somewhat um, self-loathing. In fact, so often when people are plagued by depression and anxiety, I mean, when you talk to them, they're not talking to you about someone else's life. They're talking to you about their own life and what has gone wrong, and what they don't have, and what they think they should have, and what if only they could be more like this, or more like that person. Or if they, I mean, that's, that's where we live when it comes to those types of experiences, isn't it? So, so we could say, well, we're too spiritual to think about ourselves. We don't think about ourselves at all. We're just focused on God and other people all the time. Really? Come on. I mean, we can't help. I mean, Dave, look at how personal this psalm is. Over and over, David is talking about himself over and over and over again. But he's doing, here's, here's what makes it healthy. He's doing it with reference to his creator, not without reference to his creator. Do you see that? There's this interplay, as, as one author I read years ago said, it's doubtful that we could ever know ourselves deeply until we know God deeply. And it's doubtful that we can ever know God deeply until we know ourselves deeply. That the two work hand in hand. Now that's not, that, that's saying Obviously, in Scripture, God reveals himself. But the point is, as you study Scripture, as you encounter the attributes of your God, who's not just words on a page, but the God overall who's actively involved in your life, as you think and encounter him in your life experiences, if you have humility, if if you have this perspective of the Psalms and the Proverbs where it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then that is the... That begins a journey of discovery, of understanding who he made you to be, to include the best parts and the worst parts, to be a student of yourself in the healthiest possible sense, not without reference to your creator, but with reference to him, not without intimate knowledge of your creator being taken into account, but with that knowledge being taken into account. We know as husbands and wives and parents and grandparents and neighbors and coworkers, I mean, you can't help but evaluate yourself and other people. And that's an important and healthy part of life, especially when, most importantly, when the God overall is acknowledged, is humbly acknowledged, is trusted. When his, when his 
gaze is welcomed. I mean, it's there anyway. He sees and knows anyway. But when it's welcomed, when we say yes, as we're going to go into, I'm going to get ahead of myself. We're going to go into where David says later, search me and know me. He began with, you've searched me and you've known me. And he's going to end with, search me and know me. So do you see how that's a part of the Christian life? It's not, I mean, it's, it's, um, it, it appeals to us in terms of our moral framework, and that's, that's good, it's appropriate. It appeals to us in terms of our intellect and our interest. It appeals to us e- even in our sense of artfulness and creativity. And that's all good. But it's not just on those levels. It's also very personal, very intimate, very relational. It's, um, it's uncomfortable in the best possible way. It's intrusive in the best possible way. As I said last week in John 7, Jesus didn't just come to perform science. He came to perform surgery, to cut you open, to expose you, that you'd walk in the light and not run and hide in the darkness, but just say, okay, expose me. It's a God who made you, who determined from the beginning what your end would be, however many days you would have in this world. He's determined it all. Next, I want you to consider that we have a God who, not only who searches us and knows us and who's with us and who made us, but a God who, who thinks about us and who thinks about us a lot. Verses 17 and 18, How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Okay, so another little thought experiment for a moment. Let's say I had a, a jar of beach sand right here, okay? And I was with just you, just you and me, and I said, hey, would you put your hand out, and I'm going to pour this beach sand, big pile of it, into your hand. Okay, so there you are. You stand there with this beach sand in your hand. And now I say, okay, count them. Count the grains of sand. How far do you think you would make it before you, like, threw that in my face? <laughs> Probably not too far I mean, some of you are more OCD types, and you kind of might enjoy it for a little while, but even you would have your limits. Like, this is ridiculous. I mean, he's saying, look, you, you can't even count. Blows your mind. I mean, Google's amazing, right? So I looked up on Google. Okay, what's the estimates of... I can't help myself. I'm such a nerd. I can't help myself. So, like, what's the estimates of beach sand... And even this I'm reading, it's like ridiculous. How how do they even know? I mean, they have their scientific ways of trying to calculate it, but really 7.5 sextillion sand grains. That's a 75 followed by 17 zeros. That's how many grains of sand supposedly are on the earth, which is a big number, probably still estimated on the low side. I mean, I don't know. It's a lot. can't even think of a handful how much. I mean, they're so tiny. It's crazy. But to think this omniscient God who has no such limitations, he just has all these thoughts all the time about David and about you. And unlike our twisted thoughts that can so often be toxic and resentful and bitter and things like that, like his thoughts are all perfect and loving and wanting what's good for his creatures. Every, every one of the 7.5 sextillion of them about you. I mean, think of the contrast between what we said a moment ago. We talked about our own view of ourselves and we don't realize how fearfully and wonderfully made and this sort of negativity, this self-loathing and this darkness of all of that and then this contrast of a God 
who created you just exactly the way you are and who loves you and who is for your good at every moment. And every one of those thoughts is for your good and your benefit and all that he offers you, all that he's provided you. What an amazing, loving creator that he thinks he uses those thoughts in his omniscient mind to think about you. Sometimes we think about other people, our spouse, love interest, during the honeymoon phase especially, right, or our kids, grandkids, we care, and we, and we think about other people, but always with respect to kind of us in some, in some way, and and to be honest, I mean, a lot of those thoughts in our minds, the thousands, tens of thousands of thoughts in our minds, a lot of them are self-absorbed or like how things are going for us or treating us or making us feel or whatever. I mean, that's just life, right? We're just there and, and here's a God with all these thoughts and he is thinking about us. He's, he's is just glorious. He, he's not insecure. <laughs> he just is. Completely and utterly secure and sovereign and omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent and all these other amazing attributes and he's just fully strong. We just sang the song. Come to Jesus, strong and kind. I mean, those words, it, it almost, it, I mean, just almost, it downplays it. I mean, the vastness of all he's created, the expanse we just talked about, this amazing universe and all the stars and planets and Some estimate there are more stars than grains of sand on the seashore. I mean, unbelievable strength and power and ability and creativity and administrative ability and superintending ability and all of that. And that God thinks about you. Blows your mind. That's why the psalmist says, I mean, who who am I that you should give thought of me? Who am I? What a great God, loving God we have. The next section here, verses 19 through 22, is kind of um, perplexing in a way. In another way, it's not. David has this moment of, of thinking about relationships and thinking about his own role as king and thinking about those who are enemies of Israel. And he, and he has what's called an imprecatory psalm where it's this idea of kind of calling down uh, judgment, punishment. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O oh Lord? And do I not for- loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. I mean, here's David, this moment of um, venting, so to speak of his very human, very real struggles and his understanding of things in terms of clashing kingdoms and enemies surrounding and cries out to God with those honest, raw thoughts. And people debate, well, whether or not is this, is this in any way showing evidence of David's sinfulness in, in one way or another. And in a sense, it's like, well, I mean, Paul said, even when I do the right thing, sin is present with me. I don't know that we can even parse it out or even need to. It's just, it's an honest expression of a human heart. And, and David knows that it, this is all in the context of God and what he's doing. And that's David's ultimate hope. And it's the same with us and all the friction and conflict and stuff we face in life, isn't it? And here, too, is a God 
who invites us to come with all the stuff. All the stuff. As it says in Hebrews, that we can enter His presence boldly. We can come boldly to the throne of grace to find mercy and help in time of need. Notice how David closes the psalm, as I said earlier. He returns to the concepts of searching and knowing. And and he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. We, last Wednesday in the uh, youth meeting, I like to interact with the young people in there. And we had this conversation. Before our little Bible study, we had this conversation. And I asked them, I said, hey, what are, some, what are some dangers or threats? What are some things that are dangerous about life? And so on the board, as they were answering, I was writing down what we were listing together, okay? And we, everything from natural disasters to snakes, <laughs> diseases to car accidents to dangerous people. We had this long list of things. And then... I won't say who this person was. I don't, I don't know if I even remember who this person was. But one insightful young person said, yourself. Someone gets the A for the day and where we were going in our, in our study there and where David takes us here. I mean, is it, and we talked about how it's interesting that when we're thinking of dangers and threats, I mean, to begin with, we all think of the natural Threats to our physical wellness, and that's normal. And so we listed all these things that come to mind right away, things that we're afraid of, things that were like real dangers, and, and we all have them. We're aware of them. But then we said, isn't it interesting that we almost don't think of or we barely thought of the danger of our own selves and our own minds? And then we began talking about the very real danger of our own minds, which Scripture has pointed us to from the very beginning, from the fall. Not good for you to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge, the knowledge, the way of thinking of good and evil. For you to be trusting in your own mindset. Remember in Proverbs 3, and this is a familiar one, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your what? Your own understanding. Don't try to lean the weight of your life on your own understanding because that will do you in. Your thoughts are not trustworthy entirely. David understood this. David says, God, search me and know me. Try me. Test me. Know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any, look at what he says, in my translation, hurtful way in me. I think in the ESV it's grievous. See if there be any grievous harmful, hurtful way in me. I'm hurtful to myself. I'm hurtful to other people. Remember we said earlier, there's the good of who God made us to be. Fearfully and wonderfully made. Gifts and abilities, strengths and opportunities and energy and provisions, the stewardship of life. And in that, there's so much good that God intends for us. And along the way, also there is sin and there is rebellion and there is 
distorted thinking and perverted thinking and selfish thinking so that we use even our body and our abilities and our resources to serve self and take advantage of other people. And that is harmful to us and others. And he says, see if there be any hurtful, harmful way in me, God. Probe me. Open me up. See the dangers that are within. Help me to recognize that I'm I'm more apt to believe that the greatest dangers to me are outside of me versus inside of me. But in reality, Scripture says the greatest danger to you is inside of you. Not outside of you. In fact, the greatest danger is inside of you and the solution is outside of you because the solution is your Savior who comes from outside of you to rescue you from you. To rescue you from your rebellion, from your sin, from your thanklessness, from your greed, from on and on and on it goes. It's an intimate relationship here. And David closes saying, lead me in the everlasting way. Lead me in the long-term, never-ending way. Lead me in the forever way. And so this is our segue. I had David read earlier John chapter 10. The good shepherd. Jesus, who knows his sheep. Who knows you and knows me. Because of what is revealed in the New Testament, we know even more clearly than David knew, we know God's presence with us. We know that God understands all the details of who we are, and we know that He sent His Son to come and rescue us. Like being lost at sea, two miles down, nothing you can do to rescue yourself. Dead on arrival. And to have a Savior who can come and meet you there, and not only meet you there, and not just find your body there, but resurrect you. but breathe life into you. Opening your eyes to see that you're not a cosmic orphan. You're not unimportant to your Creator. He's not against you. He's for you. He loves you. He's with you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He's laid His life down for you that you might know His love for you. To what lengths will you go, God, to rescue me? Oh, you want to see how far I'll go? I'll go to the point of my own execution. And not just my own execution, but like a humiliating, shameful, cursed execution. If I gave you over to what you wanted, that would be your end. But I'm going to take that for you and I'm going to come and I'm going to clothe you with my righteousness and I'm going to seat you at my table and I'm going to say you belong to me forever and ever and ever. And David had just little glimpse, little foreshadowings of that, and it blew his mind. And when we see that truth for what it is, it blows our mind. And we realize how, how thoroughly we've been provided for, how, how richly we've been provided for, how much our God has taken care of us. Right down to the specifics of who you are, where you sit right there, right now, and, and some of you I know, and many of you I don't know, but God knows you intimately. This morning. And through Christ, he tells you, he loves you, 
He's done everything necessary for you to be saved, rescued. You're not outside of his reach. It's not too dark for him. It's all light to him. He has you. So before we move to our time of communion, I'm just going to read a few thoughts as I was trying to summarize in my mind what we've talked about so far. God knows the good of who he designed you to be and the evil of who you have fallen to be. He knows the good gifts and abilities he's given you, the various talents by which you serve others. He knows the ways your pride and your lust and your greed pervert the good gifts and abilities he's given you as you serve yourself. He knows it all. He knows what revs you up and what calms you down, what makes you happy and what makes you sad, why you get angry and how you cool off, what you're controlled by and what you're liberated by. He knew when you'd be born and he knows when you'll die. He was with you when you were born and he'll be with you when you die. The gospel tells us that God sees the worst of us and wants the best for us. Himself, restored relationship. Showing us who he really is and who he made us to be. Through Christ, God knows us in the deepest possible way. Not just in terms of intellectual knowledge, but in very experience. That's why Jesus came in flesh. Through Christ, God loves us in the deepest possible way, giving us his best for us, even when we're at our worst, dying for us, holding nothing back. And through Christ, God is with us in the deepest possible way. He is in us, and we are in him. Pray with me. Father, thank you for what you've taught us this morning through Psalm 139. Thank you for what you're up to in David's life, a life very much unlike ours, but also like ours. Because of his human experiences, his mortality, the, the gift it was to be who you made him to be, and the perils and plagues of sin that littered his life and your redemption of, of David. And when we think about David, we think of ourselves and how we too are like him, fearfully and wonderfully made, made in your image, fully depraved, every aspect of our thinking and being touched by sin in some way. And yet, we find ourselves while lost, not lost so badly that we can't be found. Not so far from home that you couldn't come get us and retrieve us and bring us back. And that's what you did in sending your son to live in this world, to die for us on the cross, to rise for us on the third day, to assure us that just as your son lives, we too will live with him forever. To assure us that our sins are paid for, They are forgiven, they are washed away, even as we live with constant struggles, constant battles, to know that over us is your banner of love. Over us is the banner, it is finished. Over us is the banner, known, loved, and not alone. You are with us. And we thank you, God. We praise you. Words aren't sufficient to express what it means, all that you've done for us. We're so grateful. 
Help us now as we partake of, of communion together, these elements, the bread and the cup. Help us to reflect on the true substance of what you've done. Not some kind of myth, but a historical fact and a fact that has implications for right here, right now. So help us as we partake together. In Jesus' name, amen.